a copy of God's Word to Exodus chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 11 through the end of the chapter this morning as we continue our series on this fantastic book. And it's been said that if we don't really understand what goes on in Exodus, that it's, it's really hard to understand what happens in our salvation. Um, so it's a, a, a good motivation for us to not only to pay attention closely to the reading and preaching of the Word, but also individually to, to know this book well. Before we read, though, let's ask the Lord to help us. Lord, we ask that you would help us. Help us to understand what we're reading. Help us to be attentive. Guard our hearts and our minds. They might be focused upon your word. And that in doing so, we would be changed. We pray for anointing for the hearer and the preacher alike. And it's in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people And looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid. And he thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Rule, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall indeed stand forever. We see in our text this morning that it's not good enough to have the right intentions or to seek good results. It's not enough to do those things. We have to do things God's way. I have a couple silly of examples. When I was in fourth grade in Mrs. Cranch's class, we had 22 students in the class and we, we had numbers. I was right in the middle. I was number 11. And at the end of the day... Uh, Miss Cranchus would dismiss us one by one by number to go out into the hallway. We had these hooks where we kept our backpacks and our gym bags to take home on the weekends for washing. And so one by one she would let us go and then it came time for number 11. I had good intentions. I wanted to help. So I went out uh, and I got my bag. And you know I also got everybody else's bag too. And I thought, I'm going to help everybody. This is going to be great. No one else is going to have to go in and get their backpacks. And so I went in, and there I am just struggling to hold 11 or 12 of these backpacks. And I just dumped them on the floor. I said, hey, come and get it. 
I had good intentions. I didn't do things the way I was supposed to because this was supposed to work out well and we had to figure out whose backpacks was whom. And there were bad consequences. That's a silly example. Slightly less silly example. When I was in youth group, we loved paintball a lot. So about twice, two or three times a year, we would go and play paintball. Now, one of the rules of paintball is you can't play when it's dark, right? That's a, that's a pretty important rule. And we, it was getting dark, and we said, we're going to get one more game in. We're going to have fun, and we're going to be careful. We had good intentions. But then one of the, uh, one of the volunteers, he came up on one side of a barrier, and I came up on the other, and the barrier was about four inches uh, wide, and he popped up and saw me, at which point his good intentions went out the door and he shot me. The problem is he missed my mask and he hit me right here, about a foot away from my head. Four or five times I still have a scar on my hand where I put my hand over. A paintball's going 300 feet per second when it leaves a muzzle. And it's a miracle I didn't have a concussion. Good intentions, bad results. But now a not silly example at all, the Pharisees. The Pharisees had good intentions. They had very good intentions. They wanted to prepare Israel for the coming of the Messiah. The problem is they didn't do things God's way. Instead of preaching the good news, instead of preaching repentance, instead of of preaching uh, salvation to be found in the Messiah, what do they do? They, they, They put God's people in bondage enslaving them to the law, robbing them of joy. They had good intentions. They didn't do it God's way, and the results were catastrophic. My friends, we see in this text, too, it's not enough to have good intentions or to want the good good ends, the good results. We have to do things God's way. Our narrative picks up about 36 years after last week's narrative. That's if... Moses was weaned at age four, which was common for then. Acts 7 tells us that Moses was 40 when this happened to him. And so he's 40 and he's grown up as the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. And as such, he's had a privileged life, a a rich life. He's had authority. He's dressed in the Egyptian way. He is a prince of Egypt. He was known by Pharaoh personally, by sight and by voice. And according to Acts 7.22, he had a lot going for him. We read, And Moses was instructed in the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. But you know, there was something different about Moses. He had two heritages. He had two backgrounds. And these two people were radically different, as radically different as you could be. To be one, to be an Egyptian, was to be an authority. The other, to be a slave. One was a life of luxury, and the other one a life of great hardship. One was a life of freedom, and the other was of intense bondage. One was of learning, and the other was cultural suppression. The question is, between being an Egyptian and being a Hebrew, which one would he choose when he had to choose? And so it's quite significant that when... Moses is writing this book. He wrote Exodus under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit used Moses to write this book, we might say. And when he's writing this um, in the wilderness later in his life, he writes verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to 
his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. You see what's just happened there? He is just identified not with the Egyptians, but with the Hebrews. In fact, the Hebrew here is a lot stronger, and I believe the King James has it correct, when it says that he looked upon his brothers. This is not just his people. This is a very intense um, identity. He looks on his brethren. Have you ever had those moments when you react with a strong emotion? And you think, I didn't know I felt that way. I didn't know I felt so strongly about that. And so he, he comes to a crisis point in his life. He has heard about the affliction of his people. He's no dummy. He knows how the canals get dug. He knows how the large buildings are built. He knows that it's on the backs of the Hebrews. He knows that at least his father and probably also his mother were both Hebrew slaves. But now he goes out, he leaves the palace at age 40, and behold, he looks and he sees one of his people and he sees their affliction. And in a moment, we know where he stands. The Hebrew is being beaten, likely beaten to death. The word that is used here means to smite. The King James Version says he spied an Egyptian smiting a Hebrew, one of his brothers. He had good intentions here. He was moved to pity. He wanted to stop the suffering. But here we see that it is not just enough to have good intentions or the right motives or to want the right result. We have to do things God's way. What did he do? Verse 12. He looked this way and he looked that way. And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. This word is the same word used to describe what the, he, the Egyptian was doing to the Hebrew. He smote. He smote or smited. I don't know what the past tense of to smite is. But he was smited by Moses. You know, it's often how we deal with things afterwards that we find out if it was right or wrong. What does Moses do? He begins by looking this way and that, make sure the coast is clear. And then what does he do? He takes the body and he hides it. When's the last time you've been to the beach? Now, Egyptian sand is a little better for digging in than Emerald Coast sand. I will give you that. But I doubt that the Egyptian um, wardrobe included a nice handy shovel. This would have taken a while. It takes a long time to dig in sand a hole deep enough to bury a healthy taskmaster, slave master, slave driver, Egyptian. He hides what he has done. His intentions were good. His actions were wrong. He wanted to protect his Hebrew brother. That's good. But more violence was not the answer. Even when God would use Moses 40 years later to bring his people out of Egypt, how would he do it? He would not send Moses with an AK-47. He could have. He didn't give Moses any power of destruction. All the power came from God. It was a display of God's power over Egypt and her false gods. Violence was not the answer. When God would deliver His people, it would be in a way that only God got the glory. It was foolish. Didn't he realize as he was digging those grains of sand as they kept falling back into the pit that this is not going to go well for these Hebrews? 
Because what's going to happen when the taskmaster doesn't show up at the barracks that night? There's going to be an investigation. And somebody's going to pay for it. And most likely it's going to be seen as the Hebrews have killed one of their slave drivers. His actions have actually been counterintuitive, counterproductive rather, bringing more injury upon his people. How many times have we been motivated at least partially by good intentions? And yet then when we go to do something about them, we go about them all the wrong way, relying not on what God would have us to do, but upon our own wisdom and our own strength. It is not in vain that the Spirit warns us in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5-8, through 8, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. My friends, it's not enough to have good intentions. It's not just good enough to want our children to obey. We ought to. It's a good thing to want our children to obey. It honors the Lord. That's a good desire. But but my friends, when we go about it the wrong way, when we go about it ways of shame, of shaming our children, of exasperating our children, of laying guilt trips on them, instead of helping them to repent and see their need, For a savior? My friends, we have gone from good intentions to relying on our own strengths and now we will have catastrophic results where our children will be people pleasers seeking only to please their parents rather than seeing their deep need for Jesus and an inward change of their hearts. It's a good desire to be happy or joyful in this world. God does not delight in our suffering even when he brings it upon us for our good. It's a good thing. But when we look for it in all the wrong places, when we look for it in people, places, and things, these things don't bring God glory. And it's not enough just to have good intentions. When we look for it in a boat, truck, trophy buck, whatever it is, it's not enough to have good intentions. We must do things God's way. It's not just a good desire. It's not enough to have a home that runs well in which husbands lead their wives and wives submit and support their husbands. That's a good desire. But when we seek to bring it on by nagging or fear or controlling the other person or guilt trips, we're not following God's designs for the home at that point. It's not enough to just desire that our feelings of pain and guilt over the past or current sin, those are good things. We want to deal with those things. But God has given us ways to deal with those by running to Him. And when we look to drugs and control and alcohol and internet activity and bitterness, my friends, those are the wrong places to look. Moses sought to alleviate the suffering of this Hebrew, and he did, but he did it in all the wrong ways, contrary to God's desires, and there are catastrophic results. The ends don't justify the means. I mean, think about it this way. If we wanted to fill our pews in this church, we could. We could call up Central Casting tomorrow and pay everybody 50 bucks to come and fill our pews, Right? Now, it's good to want to fill our pews. It's good for folks to hear about Jesus. Uh, But that would be the wrong way to do it, right? It's not just enough to want the right things. We have to do it God's way. Well, there's fallout here. There's fallout in the text. 
And there's always fault in our lives when we do things our way rather than the Lord's. Verse 13, when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? As one astute observer pointed out, it's not just that the people of God needed rescuing from the Egyptians. They had lived in this terrible place so long that they needed rescuing from each other. Moses looks the one, the Hebrew here, legally guilty party, the, the one who's, who's in the wrong. Why do you strike your companion? And then everything comes crumbling down. So you, who made you a prince and judge over us? There's irony there, right? Because one day he is going to be the, the spiritual leader of God's people. Who made you prince and judge over us? Are you going to kill me like you killed that Egyptian? And what he thought was hidden has now been made known. When we hide our transgressions like Moses did, when, how he hid the body, my friends, our sins are going to come back to the surface and they're going to smell. There's fallout here. He answered, Who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by the well. From, from the fleshly perspective of looking at things from a human perspective, his ability to help the Hebrews is now gone. He was a man respected in the courts of the, of the royal Egyptian family. He did have the ear of Pharaoh, but he has lost those things and he flees. But there's good news. There's good news for mess-ups like you and me. How often do I have good intentions, or maybe halfway good intentions, and then use unhelpful means to accomplish what I think ought to happen? But praise God, He uses mess-ups like you and me. He's not done with Moses, is He? Exodus is a much longer book. Moses will return to the scene. But he's going to have to be in the wilderness for 40 years. It's not until he's 80 that the Lord will appear to him at the burning bush. And so for the next 40 years, he lives in Midian. He goes to Midian and he um, helps the, uh, the, the, the daughters of the priest of Midian. We're not entirely sure what to think of this man, uh, Ruel or Jethro, as his other name is, as the, uh, who will become the father-in-law of Moses. Uh, was he a, a godly priest at this point or a priest of foreign gods? Uh, depends on who you talk to. We don't know. But he flees to a place called Midian in what's today modern-day Saudi Arabia. And there he will learn. He will learn patience. And he will wait. But praise God that he doesn't give up on us. Praise God that he doesn't give up, give up on, uh, on mess-ups like you and me because we make big mistakes all the time. We make big mistakes in raising our children. We make big mistakes in, in our marriages. We make big mistakes at the church. We make big mistakes at work. But God doesn't say at that point, man, you really messed that up. I'm done with you. What does He say? I love you because I've sent my son to die for you. And come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, all those who have messed up, and I'll give you rest. I will, I will help you. And I'll clean up your, your, your bad results. I'll clean up your bad efforts. And I'll use it for your good and my glory. That's what he'll do with Moses. Isn't that good news? That when we mess up, God's not just done with us? How often, however, do we act towards other people like that? You messed up that one time 12 years ago when you were supposed to do this, and we're done. 
Or don't you know, husband or wife, how you spoke to me two days ago? I'm done with you. Now I'm going to speak to you the same way. Or our children, you mess up that one time, I can never trust you again. We think that communicates to our children, to our wives, to our spouses, to our co-workers, people in the church. Suddenly there's room for grace for me, but not for you. God would not have us walk like that. Well, the good news is that while Moses at this point is not a very good savior for God's people, God's going to use him later to redeem God's people. God is. And even when we mess up things, God's there and he hears our cries and he delivers us. There's this great summary statement in verses 22 to 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from delivery came up to God and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Isn't it good to know that when we mess up, when others mess up towards us, when we are in time of need, that God sees us, He hears us, and He helps us. I love the progression here. God heard, God saw, God knew. God hears our cry. God sees our predicament. God knows and He helps. He remembers those covenantal promises. My friends, it's not good enough to just want good results. We have to do things God's way. Are there areas in your life that you might want the, the good things for your children? You might want the good things for your spouse. You might want the good things for your home or work or, or where you work, live, play, wherever it is. And yet, you're going about it all the wrong ways. Are there those areas in your lives? In an effort to be involved with your grown children's lives, are you micromanaging them? In an effort to find meaning in your world, are you pursuing it in the wrong places? In an effort to find peace in your life, are you ignoring big issues in your family? Where are those places for you? God calls you not only to seek the right things, but to do them His way. And He helps us to do it His way. He doesn't leave us on His own. When we come to Him and say, I am weak and I don't know what to do here, that's when He gives us the strength and the wisdom to do it. Well, there's, there's really good news for mess-ups like you and me. Because there were people with neither good intentions uh, nor desire to do things God's way. And that was when they killed Jesus. God had sent His Son to perish, to die for us, to pay for our sins so that we might be forgiven. They thought they had won when the earth was covered in darkness for those three hours And they thought they had won as the life was drained out of our Savior. They thought they'd won when uh, the the great um, Joseph of Arimathea took down the corpse from the cross. They thought they had won when Nicodemus brought the aloe and the myrrh to treat his body. But all this was according to God's plan. His good plans from his heart of steadfast love for mess-ups like you and me. That through what appeared to the world to be failure was our redemption. The Savior would pay for our sins on the third day, raised from the dead in glory. Proclaiming that to all who seek Him and confess their mess-ups, which we have every day, He will give eternal life. And He invites them to live with Him forever in heaven. And may He come back soon and bring that day with Him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You that You use mess-ups like us. Help us, Lord. 
Help us not only to desire the good things, but to do them your way. That we would lean not on our own understanding. That we would trust in you with every fiber of our being. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.